Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Today, I, Henry Femi Taylor, am joined by Jonathan Monkley. Hello. David Lane. Hello. And Paul Clark. Hello. And today, we are going to be talking about the metaverse and making decisions at scale. been bombarded with assumptions and views and hot takes since looking at the metaverse and I started with the science fiction so my view is it's the purpose of the metaverse is to download programmers brains so that the owner of that programming company can own the IP in the programmers brains because that's the original purpose of the metaverse is to is about mind control so I, I don't uh, says Neil Stevenson <laughs> Yeah, I know, but he's, you know, that, I'm being facetious because I think it is still at the kind of the somewhat an idea kind of real phase. So it's uh, like people have been saying, it's like the internet in in the 90s. I, is it this? Yes, it could be. You've got to go and make it be that. From what I've just heard, that is actually not what I thought we were going to talk about when Henry said we're going to talk about time. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we this is how we, appro- how we approach we podcasts, because we come in, I came in with an idea, and you all read it and said, I don't know what this means, and then I read it back, and I didn't know what I'd written either. <laughs> I was like, well, I Henry, like, you were a consultant too long, what is this? So, Henry <laughs> said we're doing a podcast on 4D, and I was like, 4D as in traditional construction 4D, which is like mm-hmm. BIM and time put together. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, what you mentioned about the idea of the metaverse and linking time together... And if, if you take the real world piece of traditional 4D and take that into the, into the metaverse, getting rid of all the superficial stuff people are doing with meta, which is things like selling products, mm. shopping, et cetera, gaming. Time, cost, and carbon are quite intrinsically linked as concepts in the real world. So like mm. on, a con, on a site, mm-hmm. time is money, is carbon. So do you think in the meta space, is that where you're going with the idea of bringing time into it? Because there's the idea of digital twins, real time versus every three hours in terms of interactions of technology and data. Is that is that what you're starting to explore? Well, maybe, but also if you use the metaverse or one of them, metavi, to go off and do things like design buildings, including the 4D side of that in terms of exploring, you know, their whole life cycle and, and of, from construction all the way through to demolition. You might say that then the obvious next step is that as part of automating the process of building that building with swarms of smart machines going off and doing that, that, that those two should be connected so that the whole building process is not just a, a, a simulation but is a, a living project where the, the physical side of it is interwoven with the, the digital side you know, including the feedback loops. When you find out that the, the, the clay that you're pile driving into isn't quite what you thought, well, you're going to have to go back and rethink, you know, maybe the, the aspects of the construction of the building. Mm. That's really interesting. I think the um, idea of the metaverse is something that exists over time as, a, as something that's driven by purpose, effectively. I think that idea of having, you know, simulations of building and the building process has been something that has been done and talked about but it's very in the design phase it exists over there and its relationship to the reality of how that thing is built is i would say 
negligible might be too strong a word, but they aren't, you know, they, you wouldn't check them against each other and say, ah, oh, oh, well, we, we haven't clearly followed the simulation, so we better stop. You know, they're, they're just going to carry on. So we could, we, this is another one of those things about transactional fr- uh, friction, as uh, Neil would say if he was here. I'm going to channel him on his behalf. That if we can have that simulation planning phase in simpatico with the construction phase, then there's a lot we could really be benefiting from. And then, can I download that building onto the... Can we get a two-for-one on the metaverse? Can I get a physical building and a metaverse building at the well, same time? Please. At, at a super basic 4D level, yeah, the, the industry is still banging its head against the wall to get clients to consider it a, a reasonable part of the project. They always want to de-risk it and get planning and then get to site and then start considering construction sequencing, which usually by then you've built in all your errors because you've not thought about stuff. Um, but you want, I can understand that because they're de-risking themselves financially. It's bonkers, isn't it? Because it's we're de-risking an industry that is on the verge of collapse every day, <laughs> yeah. you know, with the tightest of margins. Yeah. You know, if, if people are on 50% margins, then, you know, I, I would say that is a de-risking activity. But mm. I think it's just a, it's a defunding activity because they just don't, well, they put, just they don't accept the change. They push the risk down the programme, though, don't they? It's yeah, it's so they delegating. On, they push it onto the guys that are making even less money than the clients, mm. usually. But that's really bland. That 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 topic. I think that topics. We don't want to get well, too not, stuck oh, in. Yeah, it. let's not well, get, look, let's not get stuck in it. But we have to think about them. They might be listening. Sorry, guys. We don't think you're bland. It's or maybe um, you are bland. I don't know. I don't it's know. Just, it, in honesty, it's one of the biggest. I, I think. I'm still convinced. Like the idea of time, cost, and carbon on construction is one of the untapped brilliant things that we've done with BIM and digital adoption in the UK and it's just not used enough because people just build risk into programs and they accept that they accept that error and they don't care they just kind of waste it I mean I, I'm, I'm actually on a webinar this afternoon where we're talking about how for every every pound spent on site seven is wasted due to error or something like that so mm. 30% of cost on site is rework I fully believe and 4D. That. 4D can fix all of that. We can kind of simulate it in the digital rather than using the atoms, which goes back to the first ever digital twin event, which was a Michael Greaves opening statement. Ah, uh, yes. It, yeah, but it's not just about buildings. You know, it, no. as we obsess about systems thinking and systems of systems, you know, that whole fact that actually what you need to be modeling is not just the discrete building that is your project, but obviously, you know, how it fits into... The, the wider environment, how it, you know, how it, in terms of utilities, in terms of transport, in terms of how your staff will get to work, where they'll eat, et cetera, et cetera, that whole thing. And then if you quick kick that up, you know, to cities and, and, and to a country, that's a much bigger optimization challenge. Mm. But it's the same, the same things apply. You know, if the mm. errors are, are big at the, at the building level, well, just think how yeah. big they are, you know, when you're talking about national infrastructure. Yeah, it was 30% of, yeah, if you scale that to the macro of a, of a country. I don't think it's an awkward question, but it's a difficult question. How would you, st- how, how do we start to steer the built environment towards thinking like that? Because at the moment, it probably doesn't. Does it need to be, I feel like it needs to be told. It needs to be directed. It needs to be asked for. It needs to be paid for. It needs to fit in with its paradigm. You can't kind of just say, hey, guys, we've got this great vision. Like, oh, all right, that's nice. That is not putting food on my table. And, you know, it, it's putting food on my table, but it's not necessarily putting food on a main contractor's or a, or a council's or, a, you know, who? I guess what's the scope then let's go yeah. let's go big let's we've gone big let's go let's go super big 
how big can we go? So in the BIM world, I see people using simulation models, first of all, to design the building and to assess the materials, but also they use it for monitoring during construction. And we see robots being used even now to go up and make measurements. And the robots can actually go places that people can't because it's not safe and it's not been properly certified and, and controlled and so on. And those robots make measurements that can then be compared with the with the simulation, with the digital model, and you can decide what to do about that. Mm. So mm. it allows you to do what the meteorologists would call a nowcast. What's this a is nowcast, now right? I this like is it. this is the situation as it is now, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay? and they use it in the context of weather weather stuff, you know, because they have models of weather yeah. and they have the observations of weather. Right. The other thing that meteorologists do that BIM might do is to do forecasts. So what happens in the future mm-hmm, brings time mm-hmm, in, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing they like to do is they call it hindcasts. They like to know what just happened ah. that we didn't notice at the time. I feel like so, that's not something we do in the built environment. We kind of le- leave it in leave it in our wake and never look over your shoulder. Or right. sue somebody. Yeah, that's a hindcast. Yeah. Speak to it's their fault. Sue them. So hindcast, nowcast, and forecast. And those are really some of the the nice things you can do with simulations. And as Paul says, if you run them in lockstep with the real world, mm. then you can keep the simulation anchored with what the real world's like. Because otherwise, the simulation will probably go off and do its own thing yeah. and diverge from the real world. So there's an important dynamic around that. And the further forward you go with the simulation doing the forecast, the more inaccurate it becomes. You know that from the weather. So mm. the same thing with, with BIM. If you're trying to forecast what happens in the future with the next stages of your building this sort of complex system situation isn't it and we have all these factors and variables that uh, i think are predicting how real people on real projects behave is as possible and as predictable as the weather is we know these broad things will happen you asked can we how big can we go yeah let's and, go and big. i think those principles of a building can be scaled up. So, for example, yes, you model the building. Yes, there's the the physicality of the building in terms of, you know, the sensing that you might put into the building, how you might instrument it in order to create a smart building. And then you might have a building management system that tries to optimise the environment, whether it's the air conditioning or the energy usage or whatever. And slightly mad though it may seem, I, I feel quite along with a few others, quite passionately, that that is almost the kind of model that we need to move to at a planetary scale, mm. you know, or maybe stopping off at countries on the way, you know, as a, as a massive system of systems, it's not, yes, we'll need to model the hell out of it in order to optimise energy, optimise for prosperity, optimise for efficiency, and so on, or lots of different things. But also, eventually, why we might want to do that with, you know, digital twins is actually to create you know, the concept of, you know, an operating system, mm. an operating system for a country, and maybe an operating system for a planet. And I don't mean a top-down, massively big brother kind of central system, but a massively decentralized and federated operating system. Because I think it's clear that it's what we have at the moment is suboptimal, you know, I, I think on, many, on many different that's fronts. many different you know. scales. So I think there's a really good tangent here. Okay, I'm yeah. going to respond directly to that point and say, you know, we don't manage with data. I keep saying it. We don't, we're not managing, not even, not even data. We're not, we don't manage with facts. 
or we manage with facts too late, or, you know, there's the decisions we are making are based on really assumptions and feelings and experience and what people around us expect. And this kind of very, and those, you know, those factors won't go away. But if we can see almost how our actions are directly affecting what we're what we're doing, we can make yeah, better we, decisions. We right? obsess about data sets and we talk about data trust, but actually that's not going to cut it. No. We're going to have to do it, that sharing of data or the plumbing of the data in real time. Yeah. You know, so it, it's gonna it's the it's the equivalent of, you know, building AI into your camera so that it does smart detection when the event is happening rather than loading it up into the cloud and then post-processing it, you know. So it's almost, it is that kind of edge compute, but for real-time control of, of systems and, and so our environment. Because we're sending our, our photos off to the uh, the great snappy snaps in the sky at the moment, you know, in terms of that analogy of getting your your film and you send it off to somebody and two weeks later you see that your hand was in front of the the lens the whole time. We're doing that with AI at the moment, effectively, aren't we? So yeah, there we go. I think that's very exciting. If you think about the macro issues we're dealing with at a planetary scale, fossil fuels, climate crisis, population boot, there's lots of different macro issues we're dealing with. We could go dystopian, but we shan't because everyone... we'll keep it in our yeah. in our like in our peripheral vision. Let's, what would a positive vision of of the future look like in that space where we have that planetary digital twin, and it's it's dealing with these issues that that we're, that are real fundamental problems for probably the next generation's generation. I want to point at something and say engage to be really like make li- make light of the this utopia, situation. The, the utopian version because I could we could probably spend an hour speaking about the dystopian <laughs> yeah, watchdog yeah. version where everone's got like robot limbs and it's it's like they're controlled by the state and yeah. yeah utopian version of what your vision looks or, like or dystopian and, you know yeah. whichever floats your boat if Look, you've got something good we want to hear it. We need it. positive. We need yes, positive. positive. We need positive. positive. Also negative is fine. <laughs> so the sort of visions we have for this are. Have you seen Iron Man? Yes. Fully supportive of an Iron Man style future, yes. Right. So you remember Jarvis in Iron Man? I do. So he's sitting there and he's plucking in virtual space components to build whatever system he's, he's doing. And then the physical follows the, follows the digital in the, in the construction of systems. And beyond an operating system, if we had a nervous system for the planet, that allowed us to do that, allowed us to go to our, our headset and our interaction devices or even our screen and start building stuff in a virtual world that could then be reflected in constructions in the physical world from modules, which physical modules, which are, mm. you know, the, the, the analog, excuse the word, the mirror of the, the virtual ones. Then that's a, that's a very powerful place to be in because in order to build systems, you don't have to reinvent the wheel for everything. Yep. And, I, I, yeah, and we're having to do that so much. We don't even know what is known. You know, it, it, so much information is lost in project environments when new projects are started, and we also don't get the joy of Paul Bettany's voice in our ear, which I would also like as part of this process. <laughs> I feel like we need we need some of that haptic, sensorial approach to this as well. It wants to, it needs to feel natural and uh, and human, and I think that's the that's always going to be the challenge of. Because I think there is an interaction with fiction here that's very important because that's about our imagining what could and shouldn't be. In a sense, how we interact with 
how we interact with this system and this world for it to work uh, for us rather than us work for it, I think is a really, really interesting uh, perspective. But, so You know, that, that role of, I think both David and I would agree that the, the, the physical role of the smart machines, whether it be in the kind of, uh, the, you know, the, the workings and the components as David's talking about, but, but also, as I was saying earlier, as, as agents that we send out, because if it is now, whether it's now 30 seconds to midnight or 15 seconds to midnight that we've left it, but it, you know, we, A, we're going to have to model the hell out of whatever we leave as we pull because we can't afford to get it wrong. We're also going to have to build scale in. And the way that we will build scale in to collecting data and to actually repairing and replanting and cleaning up the planet is through smart machines, you know, mm. swarms of orchestrated autonomous smart machines that we send out, you know, to do our bidding, whether it's in the oceans or, you know, in space or on the land or whatever. And their behaviors, you know, need to be orchestrated and optimized by these simulations. And that is also going to be important in terms of human behaviors, because mm. there are going to be things that we're going to have to stop doing. You know, we're probably going to have to stop traveling so far to go on holiday. So how, how, for instance, might these smart machines give us some kind of telepresence for those kinds of purposes, you know, to go, the, to, go to the places we can't go? I mean, maybe to visit planets that we don't fancy you know, getting on a yeah. spacecraft and time in Jupiter. I mean, yeah. I've so been a agents was mentioned there. We probably could tangent into a dystopian version. As soon as you yeah, said agents, yeah. I was like, right, there's agent robots there. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, Elon Musk has, has had his views on, and there is the Society Against for the Prevention of Killer Robots, I think, that's been around for some time. And there's, you know, there is concern around AI taking over and, and killing humanity. But frankly, that is a dystopian view. And I think really uh, where I was kind of what I was imagining from this we've got if we've got this problem being addressed in some sort of automated way then in a way we also would have an overview and sight of the world that we've never had before mm. to you know a resolution in terms of actual reality what it looks like and how tangible it is but also in you know, as close to real time as is possible. I, especially during lockdown, you know, things happened in lockdown and, and it's okay and we're all fine. But I did go on some Google Earth holidays. I crossed the Sahara really, really slowly, you know, did little things long like that. Long time in virtual reality? I spent a long spent, time. Yeah, I spent a long time yeah, in virtual yeah. reality. Um, if you uh, ever ever need a, um, a fighter jet pilot of the future, Jonathan Monkley is your man. Um, a long time in VR. Angels high. <laughs> Fox 2, Fox 2, uh, etc. But I think that's really interesting in the sense of this this conversation, how the real world and the metaverse could interact is I, I had this sudden image in my mind come up of people get very passionate when you show them things that are powerful. Mm. So when people saw a turtle with a plastic straw inserted in it in a way that it was really not good for it, there was immediate outcry. And things changed, and they changed quite rapidly in this country and in, in in other countries as well around the use of plastic straws. And I feel that giving children access to that world, giving people who care as well as bad people, because you know we're all we're all part of society, giving people access, giving kids access to the real world, so they can go and tell you what they care about and what they think needs to be done. We could see this. Almost this sort of the way that um, social media enabled things like the Arab Spring 
in a way. I feel like perhaps the metaverse could enable really powerful human-driven change based upon just something a seven-year-old saw and then tells everyone, and then everyone tells everyone else. And that happens, right? You know, these things are happening now. It's somebody, somebody somewhere, you know, the kind of the, the Greta Thunberg sort of uh, explosion of popularity, although I think that's kind of somewhat eased off. But that sort of phenomenon is happening and it is going to keep happening. And so in a world that's connected and much more known and clear and understandable, we could potentially live in that world where, you know, we could be, and this has always been my hope, led by small children, because I feel like they're the ones who've got their head screwed on the best. They they know what's up. They know what's important. Well, you could, we could change hats if we wanted to, but we shan't because of the... Oh. Well, okay, well, how am I putting on? The, the Zero Next hat. Oh, the Zero Next hat. Because they're like, they, they are who you were speaking about. And interestingly, Tasha on our podcast did bring up the turtle straw situation, didn't she? It's like, this is Tasha Greenfield, yeah, right? It's uh, it's the idea of oil companies banning plastic straws in their cafeterias. It's yeah. kind of like... That irony. Yeah, it's like, oh, if we ban plastic straws, yeah, but then you're going to go and crack open 14 new oil worlds. Yeah, I was thinking about that with um, Shell are very strongly Although advertising... Uh, yeah, but they're very strongly advertising electricity changes. And I was very sceptical, you know, shaking my head. And then I thought, oh, is this Shell seeing that they need to change their business model and changing their business model? Should I be, should I be, and I, I am, as I am with most things, eternally ambivalent. I am on, you know, I do think it's awful, but also I'm glad that they are changing direction. So these things can happen. And do you think that's the sort of world we could end up with if we use machines uh, to have a better understanding and effect on the world? Well, they provide us with the tools that we need that allow us to respond to the unexpected, Mm. the black swans that we don't see coming. And that's really what we're trying to do. If you look back to the pandemic, the nations that did best responding to the pandemic, and it's people like Taiwan and South Korea, were the ones that had the best tools, not the ones that had the best plans. The US had fantastic plans (laughs) how to respond to a pandemic. Okay, it was a different pandemic that they planned for, and the agencies fell over themselves trying to do, some, trying to actually to decide who should do what. So they had too much planned. So tools are the key, and you know some of my colleagues in the Marine Corps, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Quiet. And you know what they do is replan on the flight. You need a plan to go in, right? But actually, everything changes. You know when the black swan arrives, and and the ones who are able to respond and ultimately survive. <laughs> are the ones who've got the best tools. And so what we're interested in is how can smart machines, how can the cyber-physical world be constructed in a networked way so that when the when the next black swan comes, we're in a place where we can respond to it. Mm. Um, and we had an example of that. I think we talked about this on the last podcast where when the pandemic came, I got a call from the Scottish Government COVID committee saying, could we mobilise some robots to go and do some hospital cleaning? Because they were having trouble with people and COVID and, and staffing and yada, yada, yada. And the answer was yes, but we couldn't get into the labs because we couldn't get to the robots because we were all locked down and, and so on. Had we had a better cyber physical infrastructure that, we, that you know, the teams could have used from, uh, from home, mm-hmm. then we could have done, with only one or two people in the lab to do physical stuff, we could have done most of the development and adaption and yeah. indeed deployment right, in that situation. So we would have had better tools to help us respond to the black swan. So there was a good plan. See, one of the the real cool videos, there was a a recent outbreak, I'm not sure what country it was in, but I saw a video of a Boston Dynamics dog 
with a megaphone sellotape to its back. That was in China. And it was just walking down the road shouting instructions to people. So mm -hmm. that's the idea of probably the Marine Corps. Oh, we've got this robot, but we need to speak to people. We've got some sellotape and a microphone. Sellotape the dog, send him off. Mm -hmm. And it probably worked. But it was just that, what you mentioned there, it was just so, I was just remember this robot dog sellotaped. It could have been anything, right? Yeah. That could have been, they could have sent that out on a, on a, uh, on a remote control car, but it just so happens that Boston Dynamics are on a bit of a sales spree at the moment. So. <laughs> sellotaping this uh, megaphone to a 150 grand you robot can, dog. You can have black swans on your building site. Why not? You know, if something goes, to Paul's point earlier, if something goes wrong during the building construction phase, radically wrong, mm. some kind of failure, some kind of ground knock, right? You need tools in order to respond to that. And you need to be able to predict consequences. And the consequences aren't just physical, they're also economic. So I'm in awe of quantity surveyors, how they manage to estimate the, the materials needed for a building. I bet it changes on the fly as the building progresses. 100%. So, yeah, yeah. So, 100%. Right. So this kind of technology, this cyber-physical technology, is key for all mm. sorts of things. I'm thinking so, of a specific let's example. Real world, let's real-world example this. I was thinking of a real-world real example. Real example. Well, yeah, I mean, I was thinking on-site, but what are you thinking? I'm thinking of platform approach projects where you design the assemblies, have a car configurator, it then goes to a plant to manufacture said specification and appears on-site. So we are talking off-site manufacturing of built assets, yeah. right? So platform, and then the, are you imagining all that's been simulated, there's then site-based agents that then take that collection of parts, construct it, mm -hmm. So that's probably the next step because we're working on some stuff that touches on some of that, but then it probably still goes down to the guy with a PDF in his back pocket. But the the bit <laughs> the bit that we've kind of left out, you know, is the people. You know, mm -hmm. one of the bits we've left out of people. So you know, and another thing I think we obsessed about we obsess about is the kind of the socio technical side. You know, and, you know, and hence the role that you know things like living labs play. You know, in terms of actually seeing how people react will we react to what you're thinking of building for them whether mm. it be a you know a, a new autonomous vehicle or whether it be a smart building or whatever you know how will they behave in that space and i think going back to henry's point earlier this thing about you know orchestrating change at scale which i agree i think is going to be hugely important because it needs to be bottom up not top, just top down that the whole role that the metaverse can play in nudging behaviors so that you can see what the collective impact of that behavioral change would be. Now you start getting, you know, an, a powerful feedback loop, mm. you know, and, and we're going to have to do that because that first move, that lack of first mover advantage is true at the individual level. It's true at the community level. It's true at the city level. It's true at the country level because climate change, you know, is, is, is very climate change intervention is going to obviously be massively distributed and decentralized. One of the interesting things to go back to two podcasts ago at Digital Construction, we can digital twin save the world, the idea of projects being material banks. So if you're thinking slightly meta, there's a few projects recently that people have been like, wow, how on earth can the planet deal with that? What, what you could probably see in the meta space would be the idea of like thinking gamification where you've got your, you've, you've, you've collected all your steel and your wood and you've got it in a pot. You build this thing. It says, oh, well, your material bank is now empty and you haven't got enough. If you're doing that on like a global scale, you can see the idea of like natural resources. Because some of these projects we've seen recently literally are, they, I, I think there's probably not on a physical natural resource on the planet to build some of them. Whereas if you could simulate that and visualize that a global level, it would probably change people's perspective. And if you start to link finance into that, mm. 
because this is obviously very, very early days for things like green financing and projects. If it was, oh, well, this pro- the planet physically can't take this, therefore we're not going to fund it. That, that changes people's, changes the economic model a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, and I, that's that question of why are we doing this? What do we value? You know, and we're trying to make better decisions to make the planet livable for the long term. And if we can see how our actions affect that, then we can, you know, we can make decisions based on that. So I think, you know, we're creatures of habit, but we're also very bad at changes that look a long way away. But if those changes that are a long way away change on a screen in front of you, I would change my behaviour if I could see, because that's almost an immediate, that's giving me immediate feedback that in the long term, this, this act, this course of action is going to have negative outcomes. So I feel that there is having a better understanding of, of how the world is impacted by what we're doing is going to make us make better decisions because it's just, it's just, it's, it's an immediate, it's tangible Take an old school example. Go on. It's actually something, this is something I studied at uni. The idea, you know, Gaia concept, the earth is everything's a living mm. organism. Yeah. Blah, blah. When we were growing up, the idea of out-of-town shopping centres became massive. Every town was building them, but they killed the town centres, didn't they? And it's the idea, what, when I, what I explored at university was the idea of like people flow being the blood of the planet. And when you kind of cut off that traffic flow and that flow of the people, basically the town centre died like an organ quite interesting which is i think very just to kind of expand on that it's very true of, of europe there are countries and places and cities that were designed around this very disparate uh, approach and have never had that heart mm. and soul and they really miss out and i was mm. reading literally this morning about people going back home from having lived in in europe to america saying i need a nice city where's the where are the nice cities at and somebody says well have you tried tuscany no, 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 in America. So I think there is a, a real value in having those cities and places that are, are really useful. And if you have never experienced one, then I feel sorry for you. Maybe you'll try them in the metaverse. But you could simulate it though, couldn't you? Yeah, definitely. The idea of, oh, we'll say we we're going to build this here, people, the agents, you could have AI-based humans that are simulating their activity. Oh, well, there's this new thing here, therefore we're going to go there. Therefore, economic activity stops there. Therefore, it's going to create a horrible space in this part. Therefore, we need maybe need to shift that to here. Because mm. that's all my university project. It was quite interesting when you started to... I weirdly followed people in traffic for a day and mapped them and didn't nearly got done for stalking a few times. But you, you basically created this, this new space that just bypassed an entire town because there was a new road and a new thing. And it just it like chopped a limb off of a town centre. And it was really interesting to see how the infrastructure impacted everything in that town centre just because some people built some things there and everyone kind of diverse. That's a good point. And so you can model how the ecosystem, if you have a good model, you can model how, the, you can predict how the ecosystem will adapt and decide if that's a good place to put the road mm. or, or where to put the shopping centre. Mm. Of course that wasn't done and therefore it wasn't no. done. Or was it? it may have been done, but it wasn't done properly because the model wasn't right. Model's probably a 2D plan. And uh, yeah, I think if you read a lot of planning decisions now, it is a quite arcane planning has very specific purposes and outcomes for making sure that land use is done efficiently and effectively but that you know non-compatible uses of of land don't sit next to each other you know that's kind of quite a universal by universal i mean planetary to those listening further beyond there's quite a a consistent factor but then the methodologies for getting there 
or always seem like very blunt instruments to me, whether it's zoning laws or whether it's, you know, this sort of, we've written a local plan and it's 50 pages long and it, it, it references this other document that is itself 180 pages long and you'd be very glad to know there are five people that understand it. But, but back to David's point about plans versus tools, mm. there is a degree of humility required in that, which actually says, you know, we may think we can, even with modelling, we can plan you know, this building or this city, you know, and get it right. Or we can actually realise that we won't get it right. Or even if we get it right for a period in time, mm. as behaviours change, as the environment change, as the ecosystem in which that asset sits changes, the requirements on it change. And, the, and, and coming back to a, a conversation Jonathan and I were having earlier, you know, part of that humility is about... How do we build in adaptability and reconfigurability mm. to the assets? So rather, so that it almost is acknowledging the fact that we won't get it right, or we it, it, that that right won't stay static, and therefore, whether it's reconfigurable buildings or you know, I mean, think of a hospital, a reconfigurable hospital that can respond to an external shock such as a natural disaster or a terrorist incident or whatever, how it is configured for normal running mm. might need to change very quickly. You know, you might need to move the operating system. You might need to have five operating systems. You might need to change the flow of people because you're in a pandemic and, and you need to have the you know, quarantine spaces. So that adaptability is, is something that either you build in as part of the design, and of course, you know, there's a cost to it, or you end up, when things no longer fit, knocking them down. And obviously that's not good mm. from an environmental and cost perspective either. So I think this humility about how, how right can we get it. A recent term, I was doing work with an architectural practice for a developer, and the, the term chameleon space and metaverse came very nicely linked together. The idea of them having a physical thing that they can adopt physically and within the meta world as well depended on what they wanted to deliver to their clients. So it was, it dug into things like e-gaming stadiums, the fact that they could have like 500 people in one space, but then the walls can shift around. It, it was really interesting concept of chameleon infrastructure mm. and chameleon assets linked to meta. The first project that I've worked on that's explored this is the idea of having the physical building built for the client then a virtual version where 500 people attend the physical space, but 10,000 can attend the virtual space and the business model for the client was ridiculous because the, the virtual people were paying the same price as the physical people so it's like it's it's an insane business model at a basic level in that space for them but then they can adapt the physical they can adapt the virtual space to be what it wants it's in those situations you know with this adaptability and reconfigurability where are we at now what do we know what we have who knows? Where yeah. is it? Where, where is that information? Where, no, where, no. It, it's somewhere. Oh, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll resurvey it. But you can't resurvey something if you needed to change its configuration now. That's it. You're just going to do the best you can with what you've got. I think thinking of trying to find the project, but there was a project at CDBB at the Centre for Digital Built Britain working on Moorfields Eye Hospital, but also some of the researchers were from Tel Aviv and they do frequently change the use. You know, there are hostilities in Israel. You know, there is, it is effectively a very dangerous place at certain times. Also lovely, I hear, uh, according to the tourist adverts that I'm getting, I will go at some point. The Iron Curtain keeps you safe, yeah. Uh, the Iron Curtain does keep you safe. But they are ready at a moment's notice to almost go on a war footing 
in the sense of, you know, they are ready. And these things happen, you know, there have been these sorts of terrorist incidents in the UK where you need to suddenly change how you process people. You know, they're coming into your building to be treated and saved, hopefully, and you need to do something about it very quickly. And that, I think, is done at the moment with, with skill and expertise and just sheer determination rather than necessarily having all the right tools available that would allow them to do perhaps the, a better job. I mean, so, to say Sidewalk Lab, that reconfigurability was a key aspect of, you know, of mm. what Sidewalk Labs was trying to do. I mean, and as well as the sustainability side, it was about how do you make, you know, the streets reconfigurable, you mm. know, in, in, whether it be in terms of, both, you know, four vehicles, four people. I think that's a really key point there because one of the things I've been looking at recently in terms of innovation and how innovation is taken up in the sense of the study of innovation, you have early adopters and, you know, you have people at the front end who are more willing to accept a product that maybe doesn't work completely or it does some weird things or it doesn't do everything that we'd want but we like it because it's cool and it's new and then at the very end you have basically the rest of society who are like well I want to see what my grandkids are up to so I'm going to join Facebook and and that's mm. how that kind of that's how that comes about in, in in a sense you know we have this this full life cycle and I feel like the specifically referencing the uh, Toronto uh, campus that n- never came about, I think that is a bit of an object lesson in innovation in the sense of we try to push everybody, all the early adopters and the laggards through this innovation process all at the same time. And I think we saw how people were not willing, ready or able in some instances and very vocal about it to accept the changes that were required for that different system of operation. And I think we need to think really carefully about that object lesson for how we make the world fairer, more transparent, safer, more sustainable using data, sensing, robots, etc. because we don't want to fall foul of the same problems. But it's also that you do have to take people with you. And, and, yeah. it, and it, I would actually say in their defence, it wasn't for lack of trying. They did invite people in to see the, the vision as it unfolded. I... You know, I don't know exactly. I loved it, personally. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I loved it when I went to see it. Hence, back to the Living Labs point, you know, you need it, you know, early in the innovation process and then throughout it in order to take people with you. No, that's a good point. You, to, you have to take the early adopters first. You're not going to take the laggards first. And that means Living Labs. That means building MVP, minimum viable products that, that do things that are useful and can be seen to be useful so that there's a purpose. And so... You, 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 there's, a, there's an adoption process and a development process that goes hand in hand. I've been intrigued by your comments about Gaia and the, you know, the, the environment. And, and Gaia, is a, it's, the Earth is an ecosystem. It's a self-regulating ecosystem. Yeah. And the, the premise to date has been that the Earth can self-regulate no matter what. And indeed, you might argue that when the, when the asteroid hit and the dinosaurs were wiped out, Gaia adapted, yeah, and the and the Earth's ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, the planet you know, was fine, you know. And, and, <laughs> and if you, well, if that's the point. And if you look T-Rex at wall, yeah. you know, so it's and if 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 you like Nicholas Taleb's notion of anti fragile, it's an example of an anti fragile system. You, what does it, that mean? That means it, well, system. as a result of an exogenous shock, a black swan, which is Taleb's language again, 
the, the ecosystem came back stronger. Mm. Ah. So the asteroid hit, you know, there was a cloud around the Earth, the dinosaurs yeah. were wiped out, and the ecosystem came back stronger. So the, the question is, or the premise now is that Gaia is no longer able to adapt because of the impact of humans. And, and, and the kind of conversation we're having now about cyber-physical infrastructure and smart machines and data and robots to, you know, to, to give us the tools, are we in the business of trying to nudge the ecosystem the Gaia ecosystem to remain or to become even more anti-fragile if you like that mm. or will that all be done in vain and we will be wiped out wow and the earth there, will come back there's a significant I think I said this at a conference last week there's a significant chance version 2.0 we could be the first species in the universe to value engineer ourselves into a extinction oh there's that cartoon I've seen yeah <laughs> uh, over the kind of fire pits in the post-apocalyptic world but for a few brief years we created lots of shareholder well, value I, <laughs> I heard Elon Musk at an event I was at in China a couple of years ago his his thesis was that humanity is the bootstrap loader for the ultimate intelligence which is on silicon interesting that Boots, will be our, our legacy we are, we? Boot, we are just the bootstrap loader why wow, we originally created so, so the Twitter handle so the time <laughs> the time capsule that we create actually is going to need quite a lot of storage because yes. you know we're we're going to need to fill it up with a total uh, download from humanity and send it off somewhere safe, you know, so that hopefully it can be re-instantialized and whoever comes next with it starts from where we left off. Or maybe doesn't, actually. Or maybe. Or maybe goes It's back already to happened. Or maybe and we are now, this is effectively a zoo, like the Matrix. <laughs> well, exactly. So hitchhike, we could go hitchhike to the galaxy, yeah, yeah. all the simulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Back to the yeah. previous podcast, which is wow. I was actually when I was listening to you speak, I was I felt like I needed to speak to you. <laughs> I was like, no, it's a it's a list, it's a recording. <laughs> so no, uh, yeah, no, please don't talk to me. Wait, so the, the, yeah, maybe maybe mm-hmm. the Gaia theory needs digging into you further. Then, so uh, I think this is an interesting point because we have as a species a bit of a checkered past. We we are always cited as the species that can make the most impact on its environment. Number two is the beaver. I love that. I love that. That's the, There's this huge void of the human species building cities, roads, airports, and then there's the beaver that's making dams. And I love beavers, don't get me wrong. You know, I think that's huge credit to them. Number two, well earned, good for you. But when we've tried to make some interventions in in natural systems, we've got it horrifically wrong. I'm thinking the classic example for me is the cane toad, which was introduced into Australia to protect the sugar cane from a species of creature that was, um, uh, I think it was an insect that was feeding on it. And unfortunately, the cane toad has poison sacs in its back, so nothing could predate the cane toad. Crows have since learned to flip them on their bellies and then they're very tasty. But that was an example of where we got that very wrong. Mm -hmm. But now we're looking at doing other interventions around mosquitoes being impregnated with effectively a vaccine for malaria so that they're actually going to be spreading that vaccine. That's a very specific niche example. But there is an example where, you know, we've messed with things beyond our control and I think where we have been successful, and, and this is still controversial in the UK, but not worldwide, genetically modified food mm. is is not. I can I can say this this it is not controversial in hundreds of countries. Mm. It is still controversial here in the UK, and organic has its very own place. But that has allowed the greater yield and therefore mm. a smaller area required and and resilience of these crops, so that they're they're more effective. They are effectively less intensive on the environment, so they're better in every dynamic. 
but they're all they're a problem. So I'd say you know there have been there there's successes there and there's failures there. How do we avoid those? problems again maybe humility is definitely one aspect we need to be humble about this but we need tools plans are only so effective i'm definitely with you on that one of my favorite plans i saw was i was reading through all of nasa's manuals as you do very interesting there is a very very large directive on the reduction of paper and they had a 50 page report on how they had reduced paper and i thought chef's kiss that is beautiful that's the great example of the purpose or the tool uh, is self-defeating and is, you know, the plan is, was uh, defeated on first contact. But how do we avoid those sorts of problems in the future? Do so we? as soon as you went GM and we've been talking cyber-physical infrastructure, I was like, do we need to genetically modify humans so we can interact with our infrastructure and understand it more? I just want... I, I, I'll have... <laughs> uh, ethics. <laughs> a little bit of ethics there. I'm, I'm going to say... Yeah, you can imagine. I'm going to say no, but I'm nodding because I want, well, no, I, I you, want that. If you think about it, oh, we're going to do this thing, but then you you know that it's hurting where you live and you can feel it mm. because you're genetically modified and you've got a chip. <laughs> just imagine this. You throw the uh, the can in the in the waste and you get an electric shock. Like, <laughs> yes. The agent that, that electrocutes that, you. Yeah, okay, maybe we've yeah. taken that too far. But how, how do we learn those lessons, gentlemen? How do we change how, humility? Is that is that what we're going to take away from this one? I, have, I hate to say that, but ultimately I'm pessimistic about the survival of humanity. I think we're going to be like the dinosaurs. And if we don't wipe ourselves out, something else will. A bit of a knife edge at the minute. Yeah. A yeah. little yeah. bit yeah. of a knife edge at the minute. Yeah. We have a chance, <laughs> you know, and this cyber-physical infrastructure is, is one of the things we can do to attempt... Yeah, to preserve our species. But Gaia doesn't care about us. All the signs point towards the fact that we will carry on doing <laughs> roughly more of what we've done before. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 that's not going to work. I mean, I remember writing a silly post on LinkedIn once about about, you know, countries being an example of user error, you know, for the human race. You know, they're an artificially constructed concept. And how might life have been different if we'd actually been floating islands? You know, might we have learnt to deal with our neighbours and live with them differently if we'd been if those neighbours had been constantly changing? But anyway, the point is to get ourselves out of this. Not only we're going to need to start innovating on behalf of our planet and our species, rather than just the vested interest of countries and uh, companies and shareholders, but also we're going to need better tools to do that. And Mm. you know, one of the exciting things I think about the metaverse, if if done right, is that kind of horizontal, country-free, get the best brains on a problem, get the most diverse thought and experience onto a problem, and think differently, approach problems differently. Because we kind of know, as I say, if we carry on throwing the same kind of thinking and solutions at it, it's just not going to work. You know? And therefore, those tools that, that help deliver those different, those different recipes for innovation, those different you know, ways of running the planet are, are going to be key. At the moment, social media is not delivering that. So the, the phrase climate emergency, I love that phrase mm. because it really shows the, the element of urgency that's in that. And we're just at the very beginning of really starting to understand what the implications of how we're living are. Mm. And, okay, so we've got a word, emergency and urgency. But people aren't, well, certainly people in my bubble, aren't really feeling it, right? Because mm. we live well. Right? Some people in the world are pretty badly, right? Mm. But of course, they don't have the resources to, to, to deal with it. At some point, the slide 
let's call it that, we'll get to the point where we all start to feel it. And at that point, there will be urgency to reach for the tools. And therefore, we have to start developing the tools now, even though we can't see how the adoption is going to happen and the political structures don't exist that allow it to happen, to do some of the things that Paul's talking about. They may well come because everybody starts to feel it and everybody wants to do something about it. So we start developing the Mm. tools now. So we're on a bit of a knife edge, everybody. We're on a little bit of a knife edge. And really, there is a, a fairly bleak future facing us of boiling oceans, fires, rain, unseasonable weather. And for us to survive that, we have to start doing things now. So I'd like to thank our guests for reminding us of why we're all, <laughs> all going to die here. in the heat death of the universe that is true um. <laughs> but maybe if we're very unlucky far sooner than that <laughs> i've been henry Fenby taylor thank you very much for listening to the digital twin fan club podcast i'd like to thank jonathan monkley for coming with us today thanks for everyone so i'd like to thank paul clark thank you and david lane thank you absolute pleasure thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time Thank you.